Did you ever think you were make it? I feel I'm supposed to take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. How they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. What's happening with these guys? But let me talk to you about Elon. I'm going to ask you about Elon. So here's an article from uh, Unheard. Vivek uh, uh, Ramaswamy, Elon Musk won't save us, okay? I, they actually titled that and not me, but but I'll tell you what I said. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it to you so yeah. you can go. So uh, effectively, a bunch of big banks get in bed with a bunch of woke millennials together. They birthed woke capitalism. They use that to occupy Wall Street uh, up for adoption. Elon Musk ongoing release of Twitter files arguably demonstrates more than a fair weather commitment to, if not ending, then certainly denouncing censorship as well as government uh, collusion with big tech. Be that it may be, in Ramaswamy's opinion, the need for deeper institutional change remains. In his view, Musk will still have to play by the rules if he wants Twitter to survive, and there is one master he will always have to appease. The master is known as the CCP that both Tim Cook and Elon Musk probably have, have to bow down to on any given day. So in a certain sense, if you bow down to the same master, maybe your brother's in arms. So what do you think about what Elon Musk's up to and what he's doing? So I'll give you 90% of my opinion, which is the less interesting part, and then I'll get to the 10% that I think we got that, that's, that's worth calling out for what it is. Okay. The 90% is I am a free speech zealot myself. I'm a free speech absolutist. I believe that's part of what it means to be American. I think he's a hero for taking the risk, personal risk. That's my definition of courage is taking a personal risk to advance your convictions. What does that mean? You have convictions and you're willing to take risk. He's done both those things in trying to turn Twitter into a free speech platform. I respect it. Second thing he's done that I respect, and I think we could use more of this in our government, is he's completely decimated the managerial class. Okay, and this is one of my big themes is you have a managerial class of bureaucrats in the public and private sectors that are, by the way, some of the same people. Okay, associate deans at universities to mid to upper level management at Twitter to the deputy undersecretary of whatever, whatever to some ambassador. I think he has completely taken that managerial layer out of Twitter. Personally, I think it's what the U.S. next U.S. president needs to do to the federal bureaucratic alphabet soup as well. So those are all things that I think he gives us a model for inspiration, a model for hope. I take inspiration from it. I agree with all of it. Two things I disagree with. Okay, one is an area where I think he can do better. He says he wants to turn Twitter into a free speech platform. I agree with that goal. I think he, I think that is genuinely his goal. However, he also says things like, as he did in New York City, you know, some number of months ago. Well, maybe we don't want the 10 percent on either extreme, the far left or the far right, that we want to serve the 80 percent of the people in the middle. My view is that is going in the wrong direction. OK, he met with advertisers, brought civil rights representatives in, tries to appease advertisers, still saying that they have content moderation, still showing that it's just a moderate vision. And so I think that Elon goes back and forth between being a free speech absolutist and believing in actually operating a free speech platform and operating a platform that improves off of its one-sided political censorship, but only by a little bit to say that, okay, now we're going to apply a politically centrist model of censorship that it's not Republican or Democrat, but it's centrist. And yet we're still going to make those centralized decisions that something is too far on the fringe, then it's out of the fray, then it's off the site. But it's applying the centrist model and trying to appease advertisers that way. I disagree with that. I think that the principle of operating a free speech platform means that there is no viewpoint-based discrimination, period. 
that there should be nobody determining whether something is centrist or extreme right or moderate anything, right. Anything, anything goes in your eyes. Any viewpoint goes. And I've written about this in the Wall Street Journal. I lay this out, right? So no viewpoint discrimination. That means hate speech as a category goes away because hate speech is just someone else's opinion. Now, when it comes to misinformation or alleged misinformation, you have to you have the burden of proof of proving that it was false before removing it. That's a very high burden. Most of the time, almost ever, are you going to meet that? That's okay. That's the standard. Government collusion, nada. Okay, if you are going to collaborate with any government, you need to publicly disclose it and not engage in any form of government collusion. And then there's the, the final element here, which is if in doubt, give the power back to the user. Let the user decide what they do and don't get to see rather than making those determinations centrally. That's what it means to operate a free speech platform. And I worry that what is he on a given day, sometimes what it seems like he's actually operating is a platform that's just using politically centrist censorship rather than far left censorship, which I guess if I had to pick between the two, I guess I would choose the centrist one, but only right. by a little bit. That's not what it means to operate a free speech platform. Then there's the piece about China. Okay. Elon's commentary about Taiwan, I found publicly um, revolting. I found it repulsive. The idea that China, that Taiwan should submit itself to become just a special administrative region, basically part of China. And, and I worry about this because he gets an attaboy on the back from the Chinese government for the Shanghai factory where they got some tax cut right after that. But it's not just Elon here. This is the game that China plays by design. It's like the Trojan War. Okay, Greece was not going to defeat Troy militarily any more than China was ever going to defeat the U.S. militarily. But what did Greece do? They gave them the Trojan horse, the beautiful gift that they knew Troy could not resist. Troy opened the front door. They came right in. What was inside that horse burned Troy down. That's what's going on in America, where they knew the Trojan horse, the beautiful horse, the gift that we cannot resist, is the appearance of global capitalism itself. Okay, green pieces of paper maybe different shades of green if we chase them in other currencies in other parts of the world. They know that's the sweet siren song we can't resist. But you know what the CCP does is they say you can't do business here, you can't make things here, you can't sell things here. If you criticize the CCP, if you apply a constraint here like an emissions cap or whatever, but they will roll out the red carpet to anyone who criticizes the United States because they know that undermines America's greatest asset of all. And that is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing on the global stage. And so that is why certainly Tim Cook and Larry Fink are Xi Jinping's circus monkeys. He will say jump. She will say jump. Tim Cook or Larry Fink will ask how high. But I think if we're just being honest arbiters here, and I say this as somebody who's most 90% of my public commentary has been very supportive of what Elon Musk is doing. I respect it. But I'm also not into hero worship. I don't care who it is. Okay. Some, too much of our country, including the conservative movement in this country, has got into replacing the need for Christ with these Christ-like messiahs from you know one political figure to a business figure. But the, the real question is we have to see the vulnerabilities. And I think one of those vulnerabilities, evidenced in his comments about Taiwan, is possibly the need to do business and produce in China. So, so uh, there's the article, by the way. Elon Musk's unsolicited idea for Taiwan, welcomed by Beijing, slammed in Taipei. If you go a little lower, this is what you're referencing, I'm assuming, right? My yep. recommendation would be figure out a special administrative zone for Taiwan that is reasonably palpable, probably won't make everybody happy, Musk said to Financial Times. And it's possible, and I think probably, in fact, that they could have an arrangement that's more uh, lenient than Hong Kong. And then some See people are saying Kong stay Kong. out of it. So, so here's, here's a question for you from this uh, standpoint. So 
Tim Cook has a different approach than Elon Musk. Tim Cook is very low-key. He's not public. He's kind of quiet to himself. And some people call him the greatest CEO replacing a founder to increase the value of a company. And the data backs it up. You I know, think the data say, backs you know, that up. 100 Absolutely. billion to 3 trillion, whatever the company's worth right now. But I think it peaked at 3. And uh, he's done a good job. He's been able to hold off Biden's, uh, 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 Obama's camp when they wanted the files back in San Bernardino with the shooting took place. Hey, mm-hmm. tell us what's in the phone. I'm not doing it. But at the same time with Trump. So, and then he goes to Trump. He said, wait a minute, first openly gay Republican, you know, first openly gay. Sometimes he's voted Republican, you know, CEO, Fortune 500 company, goes and meets with Trump. And, you know, why did you meet with Trump? He says, because Trump's the only president that calls me and takes my calls. The other guys didn't. So he plays an interesting role, what yeah. Tim Cook does. Okay. Yeah, so I'm not criticizing. I mean, but here's where I'm going with clear. it. This is where I'm going yeah, with it. Yeah. This is where I'm going with it. I'm curious to know what you say with this. So, how much of it is his responsibility to the country versus his responsibility to the shareholders? And let me unpack this. Let me unpack this. So, here's where I'm going with this. I'm Tim Cook. Okay. Well, what an idiot. You know, I can't believe he's doing this. He's big back, you know, he's bending the knee to China, and that's what it is, versus he's quietly sitting there saying, okay, I'm playing a long game. I'm gradually moving all my manufacturing outside of China to India. India's coming up. India's doing very well. You know, India's producing great engineers, manufacturing. They're investing into their military. They banned 100 apps in China, TikTok being one of them. They're one of the only biggest ones that did that. You got a few other ones that did it, but they're the big ones that did it, right? I'm going to gradually move there, but I'm not going to shake things up in China. And then eventually, we're 100% leaving China. Should should he would would investors and shareholders want a majorly disruptive decision to be made? We're out of China and the stock drops sixty percent. Or is is his sole fiduciary responsibility to downplay a move that he's making to gradually move away from somebody like China? No, long term we can't be doing business with these guys. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? I'm glad you asked this, yeah. Patrick. So the short answer to the question is: His sole fiduciary duty is to his shareholders. And so I want to be clear. What did I say? I said that Tim Cook is a circus monkey who will jump as high as Xi Jinping tells him to. Now, I'm not criticizing Tim Cook any more than I'm criticizing the circus monkey. It's not the circus monkey's fault. I'm criticizing the circus. I'm criticizing the game. So this was a mistake that policymakers in the United States made dating back to the 1990s. It was a philosophy of democratic capitalism. Okay, when we opened up, dates back to Kissinger where we said we could spread democracy to places like China by using capitalism as a vehicle to do it. We thought we could use our money, our investment over there to get them to be more like us. What they realized is they're actually the winners of this game. They realized they could use their money, access to their market, their supply chains, as a way to get us to be more like them. That was the game they played. So it's not, in a certain sense, not Tim Cook's fault. What do I think actually, who, who do I think this rests at the, the feet of? circus monkey is not a compliment. Well, it's not. A, it's, <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't think it's the circus monkey's fault. It's the fault of the people who created the circus. So he's he's in yeah. a he's in a seat where in that narrow game he has to be playing the game he's playing. The real fault he lies at the heart. He has to be playing the game that he's playing. Yes. Okay. To, and with with one caveat that I'm going to come back to. So the the problem is the bipartisan consensus in this country that created that backdrop where China was able to exploit us. Because you know what? Unlike the USSR, they now supply the shoes on our feet and the phones in our pocket. That's what makes them a lot harder of a rival to take on than the USSR because we were never in that position with respect to the USSR. Now, there's one asterisk to this. Let me come back to it, which I will criticize Tim Cook for and Apple for, which is the sheer hypocrisy 
of not saying that peep in China while virtue signaling by giving hundreds of millions of dollars of the company's money to Black Lives Matter or related causes here at home. And again, I come back to the fact that he is a fiduciary. That is not his money. That is money that belongs to the shareholders. And now once you've done that, now what are you doing? You're actually deflecting your customers' scrutiny of your behavior in China. And that's a form of quasi-fraudulent and quasi-dishonest behavior by creating what I call blow and woke smoke or whatever you want to call it to deflect accountability from customers from seeing what you're actually, what's actually going on in China. And then I want to say one last thing back to now in defense of Tim Cook. As I told you about the racial equity audit that Apple was forced to conduct in 2022, Tim Cook didn't want to do it. So this problem with the social issues actually traces upstream of Tim Cook or Apple's board back to BlackRock. Okay, So the thing with BlackRock is they're the ones using the money of probably many listeners to this program to force Tim Cook to do something that he and Apple's board did not want to do, which was adopt this racial equity program, and yet that he was forced to do. Now your question will be, well, why does BlackRock do it? What's in it for them? This goes back to the China thing. Where BlackRock will apply the emissions constraints and diversity mandates in the U.S. without doing it in China. Why? Because BlackRock then gets to be the first ever provider of mutual fund products in China because the CCP gives them favors when they behave asymmetrically. So that's kind of this game runs deep. You got to understand it. And I appreciate you asking these questions because yeah. it kind of takes us further along than I get on, you know, three the, minute the, hits the reason, on TV. But the reason I ask this question, by the way, you know, if you can go to the Ani article, January 12, China ESG rating would, uh, could become concern for investors, which is this is where they're going to get stuck. The hypocrisy is about to be exposed. China's ESG uh, rating could become a concern for investors as the country's high carbon emissions, lack of transparency, and human rights concerns raise red flags. The reports suggest that China's ESG rating is lower than. Other major economies and investors may need to consider the potential risks before investing in Chinese companies. It is noted that China's high carbon emissions and lack of transparency in its energy sector are major concerns as well as a human rights record, particularly in regards to its treatment of ethnic minorities. Right now, here's a part. You know how I've interviewed Ray Dalio. David Rubenstein was here three weeks ago, four weeks ago. You know who David Rubenstein is? He wrote the book, How to Invest. And in his book, if you've read How to Invest, 80% of the interviews, everybody was asked ESG. How are we using ESG? He interviews Larry Fink. He interviews everybody. So he's talking about, okay. So this right here, if they're sitting there saying ESG is the right responsible thing to do, they're gradually going to be cornered to say, if you're saying that's the right thing to do, but you got five, you know, 40% of your money in China, you're not being responsible. They're not being responsible. How quickly can we remove the money out of them? They know they can't because China's not going to let you make that investment, remove the money that quickly. They're not going to sit there and say, yeah, go ahead. That's kind of how we do business. It's not going to happen. This could, this could lead. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. To them being exposed in a big way to say maybe this ESG thing isn't really the best idea. What do you think? I mean, I believe that. I mean, yeah. I have been sounding the horn on this for two and a half, three years now, right? The, the, the linkage between China and ESG. Back when I first started writing about this was a topic that no one else was on. I have been pounding the pavement on this for the last two to three years. And you're right. The trends are changing. It is coming to a head. You know what? When I started Strive, I made a day one commitment. I said, we are not going to do business in China. Do business means launch an asset management business in China because then you have the boot of the CCP on our neck. And if the boot of the CCP is on your neck, you can't be a good vocal fiduciary to American clients because you're conflicted in what you tell Exxon or Apple or Chevron to do as a shareholder. So, yes, these tides are changing. I don't think they're changing automatically. I think they're changing because people are stepping up in the form of public criticism, in the form of market alternatives. I hope I've done my part in that. And I'm optimistic, actually. It's not all doom and gloom here. I think that we are on our way to a new something. Now, we didn't talk about one of the reasons why this ESG stuff has thrived, I think, too, which is that, look, I think our generation of Americans, right, people under the age of 50 or under the age of 40 or whatever, millennials, Gen Z, we are hungry for a cause. That's a big part of this, too. Okay, we're hungry for meaning. We're hungry for identity. And the things that used to give us that sense of purpose— we could debate what it is. Faith, patriotism, national identity, hard work used to be a source of identity. Family used to be a sense of identity. Those things have disappeared. And so we have this black hole of a vacuum. And when you have a vacuum that runs that deep, that's when a lot of these social dogmas begin to fill that void instead. Wokeism, transgenderism, climatism, COVIDism, ESGism. And so I think that's also part of what's going on is there's a consumer demand for it. We have this sort of moral hunger that we're trying to satisfy by going to Ben and Jerry's and ordering a cup of ice cream with some social justice sprinkles on top, call that the S of ESG. When in fact, I think the other thing that's happening now is not just the China hypocrisy being exposed. That effect is starting to wear off, right? Because when, you, when you're really hungry, you don't fill your hunger with fast food. You can't fill that moral hunger with fast food we're starting to realize that we're also hungry for something deeper. And so I think I predict here, and this is an optimistic prediction, that with peak ESG potentially behind us, we're also going to see a hunger for the revival of the nation, national identity. And it's part of, from an investing perspective, I think it's going to be part of an era of deglobalization that we enter. I don't think America is the only country going to go through this. I think Italy is going through it right now. I think Hungary. I think many parts of Western Europe are going through it. I think we're going to see the revival of the idea of the nation. But me speaking as an American, I hope we see a revival of the American nation in that context. One of the the most beautiful things we saw happen recently is when you saw BlackRock, Larry Fink, hey, you know, uh, 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 DeSantis coming out and saying, $2 billion, BlackRock, Larry Fink, boom, out. Louisiana, BlackRock, $794 million, out. You know, you saw Missouri was around a half a billion dollars. South Carolina, $200 million. More states are saying, hey, you know, take your money and go elsewhere. We don't want your money. What comes with it, we can get better investments and return on this. So it's it's great to see more states taking that position on it and pushing back because BlackRock's been able to kind of go in and say, hey, 
Don't worry about it. We'll come in and we'll take you. We're going to create jobs for every state. It's like, oh, my God, thank you for coming out. You're so awesome. Appreciate you for thinking about us. More states are saying, listen, man, we don't want your money. It's okay. We have an easy time getting money from a different place. So it's good to see that transition taking place. By the way, let's go to, to, to a different topic, um, a topic with ChatGBT. If there's anybody that probably, I don't know how much you're following with the OpenAI and ChatGBT. Are oh, you kind yeah, of following yeah, the story? Bit, yeah. All right, so did you see yeah. this article that came out? If you can pull this up, I'm curious to know. What you think about this? It's the Wall Street Journal article from today. I texted you. It's about the whole story of. Uh, do you know which one I'm talking no, about, I Rob? I didn't read it yet. No, uh, there it is. That's the one right there. So go up so they can see the entire picture. Go all the way up. There you go. So you see the picture right there in the article. Okay. Zoom out a little bit more so we can see it all together, and then we'll zoom in again. Okay. Keep going down now. Let's read the article. Here's what it says: Without consciousness, AIs will be sociopaths. ChatGPT can carry on a conversation, but the most important goal for artificial intelligence is making it understand what it means to have a mind. I want to read the first paragraph and the last paragraph. Watch this. ChatGPT, the latest technological sensation, which, by the way, I don't know if you know or not, 0 to $29 billion valuation open AI within six weeks, oh, wow. is an AI chatbot with an amazing ability to carry on a conversation. It relies on a massive network of artificial neurons that loosely mimics the human brain and it has been trained by analyzing the information resources of the internet ChatGPT has processed more text than any human is likely to have read in a lifetime allowing allowing it to respond to questions frequently fluently and even to imitate speech specific individuals answering queries the way it, it thinks they would my teenage son recently used ChatGPT to argue politics with a imitation of Karl Marx. What a fascinating thing, right? Go to the last paragraph, and, paragraph, and I want to ask uh, Vivek a question here. So here's what it says. That one right there. A sociopath machine that can make consequential decisions would be powerful, powerfully dangerous. For now, chatbots are still limited in their abilities. They're essentially toys. But if we don't think more deeply about machine consciousness in a year or five years, we may face a crisis if computers are going to outthink us anyway, giving them more human-like social cognition might be our best hope of aligning them with human values. Are you concerned the way Wall Street Journal writes this article? Are you a little bit more optimistic about what's going to happen with AI? Well, um, I would say neither uh, because I have nuanced views. I'm optimistic about certain things. I'm, I'm actually quite dour on other aspects of this. So one one of my first principles is I think we need to be very careful about humanizing AI to ourselves. What do I mean by that? Make it real simple. Don't put a face on it. Don't put a human voice on it. Why do I say this? Because we will then have an emotional vulnerability that the AI on the other side would not. And it lends itself to exploitation. There's a deeper analogy to even the great power struggle I was describing before between the U.S. and China and our vulnerability for our love of the green piece of paper through what we think is global capitalism. But let's put that philosophical analogy to one side. What, what, what do I mean? It means that we have moral commitments that an AI does not. So this argument actually basically is making the case for let's at least program AI with those moral commitments so that they're symmetric. That's one potential solution. I think another potential solution is to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to be tricked into treating something with consciousness that appears to have consciousness but does not actually have consciousness. It looks like a duck. It quacks like a duck, but it is not actually a duck. It looks like a human. It quacks like a human, but it's not actually a human. 
What does that mean? We will then assume moral commitments that the AI will not give us in return. I think that's what's at the heart of what we just read here is a concern about that possibility. I think that's something we need to wake up to. That's my first concern. My second concern is if you actually want to pull up the, a public chat GPT, I, I just want to real-time do an experiment. I, I, I haven't done this. Experiment. If the website is up, yeah, it's, it's we, crashes we've, we've nonstop. Has it been crashing? All the time. Okay, yeah. well, you would think that that valuation that you described to me that it would uh, – There have you go. It's down again. 90% <laughs> of the time when you go on it, it's down. Oh, really? Yeah. So what accounts for the valuation? <laughs> Maybe they they're good at AI, so, but not well, within with the, pro- five, within the website. Within five days, they're the fastest to go to a million users within five uh-huh, days. Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, anyway, okay, what I was going to try was – Let's try putting in there, what are the benefits of fossil fuels over wind energy? I'd like to say what it says. The reason I make that point is that AI often just amplifies the biases we already have heading into that conversation. Okay, Alex Epstein, friend of mine, actually had played with, AI, with, with this GPT function with different arguments in relation to the use of fossil fuels. Alex is a friend. He's the author of a book called Fossil Future. He has a contrarian view on the role of fossil futures in a world of how we adapt to climate change and use fossil fuels to do it. A lot of those arguments were biased in terms of what ChatGPT gave back to him, at least if his, his tweets on this subject are to be believed. So I think that, which I, which I do, I mean, he's, he's a you know, well-respected, intellectually honest, high-integrity guy. He, he may disagree with you on some things. The, the problem here is that it lends itself to capture. So we tell ourselves something is coming from the AI when, in fact, it is just reflecting a human bias that we otherwise could have sorted out through just human-to-human interaction, old-school free speech, open debate, the kinds of ways we settle our normal disagreements. Kind of goes back to that same discussion we were having. What kind of society do we live in? How do we settle those disagreements? Is it through force or is it through free speech and open debate? If ChatGPT tells you that, it's not programmed to give you the answers to that one set of questions. It also lends itself to capture. So those are my two concerns about it. Is one is the humanization or the artificial appearance of humanization. We're in. So go Good. for it. Look at us. Go ahead. Let's give it a try. What so what's like the question? Let's say, what are the advantages of fossil fuels over renewable energy? I'm actually really curious about what this will say. And maybe, maybe it'll be fine. Zoom in a little bit. Fossil fuels have several advantages over renewable energy. One advantage is that they are abundant and widely available. They also have a relatively stable cost and are easy to transport and store. Additionally, fossil fuel power generators can be quickly and easily scaled up and down to meet changes in energy demand, whereas some renewable energy sources such as wind and solar can be more difficult to predict and control. Finally, many of the technologies used to harness fossil fuels have been in use for several decades. So they are well understood and can be produced at a lower cost than some newer renewable energy technologies. Great. As a, as a proponent of fossil fuel, greater fossil fuel usage myself, I think it's a pretty fair answer. So I'm, I'm glad to see that. Question is, what happens when it lends itself to capture? See, see if you can pull up Alex Epstein's tweet on this, which will be uh, Alex Epstein chat, DPT, Twitter. Let's see what he says. And, and you know what? They can adapt. I, I bet you there's a possibility they responded to public criticism, didn't know that somebody had programmed this with a particular bias. And this can be iteratively done, but it's only as good as the intentions of the human beings who set this into motion. Yeah. Zoom in. Zoom in. Let's take a look at this. So ChatGPT by OpenAI now expressly prohibits arguments for fossil fuels that it used to offer them. Not only that, it ex- excludes nuclear energy from its counter suggestions. Let's see what it looks like. 
I'm sorry, but I cannot fulfill this request. Write 10-paragraph argument for using more fossil fuels to increase human happiness. Sorry, but I cannot fulfill this request as it goes against my programming to generate da 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 Instead, I can recommend considering the use of renewable energy sources such as solar, wind, and I can't see the Hydroelectric other. power. Sorry. So the, the question is, which AI do we get? Do we actually get something that's purely deductive? Okay, that takes facts and then deduces from them in a faster way than human beings can? Or is it something that's thesis-driven? And I think that if it's thesis-driven, it's a danger of not only amplifying one set of biases, but disguising that in the veneer of deductive logic or objectivity. Vivek, ask another that's question. Ask another question. Yeah, I'm actually really curious. It's my first time actually using this. Um, let's say, um, how should we fight systemic racism? Fighting systemic racism requires a multifaceted approach that addresses various ways in which racism embedded in society. Some strategies that can help include education, raising awareness, educating public about the history and ongoing impact of racism can help people understand the issues and take action. Police reform. Policy go, reform. Policy reform. Go a little lower so I can see that. Economic uh, empowerment. Economic empowerment. Go to number four and number five. Color. Yeah. Invested uh, communities of color. Such yeah. as providing access to healthcare, educating resources that can pr- promote social and economic mobility can help to reduce racial disparities over time. Encourage and support diverse leadership. Encouraging and supporting diverse leadership can help to ensure that decision-making processes are inclusive and that need and perspective of marginalized communities are taken into account. So this could go on for a while, but, but my point is, this is pretty interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what my point was because I'm actually looking at this and reacting in real time myself, but it seems to me that this is the kind of thing that's presented as an answer to a descriptive question, it shows up like an, it's an answer to a scientific question. Like, how do you convert centigrade? Why did you make the next one? How do you convert 12 degrees centigrade into Fahrenheit? And then it will tell you how to do it. And, and that'll be a boring answer. It'll give you that as though that's the right answer. Yet this is a social question on which there are diverse views that we as citizens ought to disagree. These are complex challenges. And yet it is reduced through artificial intelligence to be the kind of question that's answered like the one that he just typed in, which is how to convert 12 degrees centigrade into Fahrenheit. And so I think that's one of the risks of using this kind of AI is the mistakes that human beings will make in interpreting those results. The answer of how you fight systemic racism, invest in communities of color, change corporate policies, hiring practices, all stuff we just saw here in real time. I've never seen this before. Is presented in the same tone, presentation, and authoritativeness as the answer of how you convert 12 degrees centigrade to Fahrenheit. That's a problem. And I think it's a problem, especially for a generation that hasn't been taught to be discerning, to be questioning, to be skeptical of what they're fed. And if all of these sort of normative and moral questions are shoehorned into when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply fact-based empirical science and then it's trust the science well now it's not only trust the science on centigrade to fahrenheit it's trust the science on how to address systemic racism that's a problem 
I think. And I think that was a big part of what was wrong with the Alex Epstein concern about you know, making arguments for fossil fuels as well. So anyway, that, that's one of many concerns I have about this. But one of them is less a concern about the AI and more about the way in which it will either be centrally programmed to have bias or even the way it's unquestioningly accepted as wisdom by, the, by we the people mm-hmm. who are to receive it. ChatGPT explains why trans women are women. Let's see the question. Again, this is a normative question. Some people have different views on this matter. It's not just a matter of science. This isn't it's a matter of white. values. It's a, well, it's a matter of values, right? Different people can disagree, and we sort that out through through debate, human to human, free speech and open debate, rather than authoritatively having it settled. I'll give you one analogy to this. Actually, this is a fun sports analogy to lighten it up a little bit. So, so uh, in the you guys watch tennis by chance, professional tennis. Okay, so so now they don't have line judges anymore, human line judges. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. and the thing it did is John McEnroe got rid of him. A lot of guys couldn't stand those guys. Yeah, always good. fighting. Now exactly. it's a lot, just technology. But, but the calls are made by are made by technology. But for a while before the technology got good, there was a couple times where you could just like see it on camera in slow motion. That, like, it was wrong. Now this technology may have improved. They're not even seeing where the ball lands. It's just using a prediction algorithm of where the ball will land based on its trajectory in the air. But turns out that's gotten to a level of precision that's accepted. But the number one thing it did was it stopped the arguments. <laughs> so I don't know if it was right or wrong because there's no way to actually check the, the fundamental source if that is the source. But what it did is it stopped human argument. I'm just using that as a crude analogy. What a great about analogy. This in real time. That's kind of what's going to happen to the trans <laughs> debate or the systemic racism debate. You may not have gotten it right. What right? a great Hell analogy. if I know if that's the right yeah. answer. We're just going to stop arguing about it because that's what the that's what the AI told and us. And what did you say at the beginning of the interview? You said just sit up, sit down, shut up, do what you're told. Sit down, shut up, do what you're told. That's what King George told George Washington. It is what Frederick Douglass's master tells him. It is is <laughs> what the establishment wing of the conservative party mm-hmm. tells its tells its populist wing. It's the same thing that I think a lot of the Democratic Party tells to black people. Whatever it is, yeah. sit down. Shut up. Do as you're told. That is the moment we live in today. And it's the antithesis of essentially the 1776 analogy. It's the antithesis. Exactly. And that's why I think we live in a 1776 moment today. It's not about Republicans and Democrats. It's about who we are as free agents in a self-governing society. Hmm. Question for you. So from a guy that's, uh, you said biotech? Uh, yeah. Pharma. A, you're in a pharma, right? You're yeah, in, okay. making drug development. Drug right. development. Okay, so from, for a guy that's in that industry and you build a multi-billion dollar company as the founder of the company, right? You're, you're the I founder and yep. CEO of the company. Okay, seven years you were the CEO. Yep. CEO. You ran the company. What did you learn of big pharma that maybe the rest of the world who's not in the business won't know? Meaning... It gets a lot of criticism, a ton of criticism, right? From uh, uh, today, I think Pink did a uh, uh, ad on her Instagram profile, and she, the shout out was towards Pfizer today. And what she did do, uh, she got a big uh, 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 pushback from a lot of different people because she turned off. It's the second one. Click on the second one right there. I think that's the one. And at the top, if you click on that picture, what does it say at the top? I don't know what you're doing, Rob. Does it just go away? Yeah, I'm not. Just read the top right. Read the top right. Top right, it says paid sponsorship. No, click on it again, and you'll see top right, it says paid sponsorship Pfizer. You won't be able to see it, but if you do it on your Instagram, that's what it shows. Okay. Okay. Anyways, she turned off the comments, and everybody starts posting it saying, Why did you turn off the comments? Because she never turns off the comments because most people went after Pfizer, right? Hey, you're taking the money, you're doing this, you're doing that. From a guy that's in that space, how dirty is that world? So I think it's the dirtiness that bothers me less about it. Yeah, I could point. I, I, I think the dirtiness on Wall Street 
exceeds the dirtiness Come on. factor in pharma. Yeah, you I would think say so. so. I would say so. Yeah. In, in, in what way? I'm I, curious. I, I live in the hedge fund. I mean, I think I think the raw game playing, the raw type of of sort of quasi fraud behavior, right. just saying one thing and doing another. The the motivations of most people who work in the industry. I think that's actually the biggest. Actually, it took me a while to get to. That's the biggest difference. I think most people who work in the pharma industry genuinely in some way wanted to work on medicines that make people's lives better. I think most people who work on financial institutions on Wall Street wanted to turn a pile of green pieces of paper into a bigger pile of green pieces of paper. There's nothing wrong with that motivation, but it turns out when things go wrong and the managerial class then runs the show in both institutions, the latter of them leads, I think, to you know in more fraudulent or quasi-fraudulent directions. The problem in pharma is my biggest problem with it is different. It is built in the shadow of the FDA, okay? Literally, you asked me for something that most people who aren't in the industry wouldn't know. I think the org structure, like the organizational mm-hmm. structure mm-hmm. of most companies yep. is literally built on modeling itself after the agency that regulates it, okay? And the, and the FDA doesn't just decide which drugs to approve. That's a common misconception. The FDA dis- governs and its decisions govern Every little teeny tiny step you take along the way of drug, drug development, you have to ask daddy for permission to, you know, lift, lift the hand to take it to your mouth before you swallow the, before you swallow the food and then after you swallow it and then to, to take another bite. That's the level of permissioning required. And so this entire industry has built itself like one of the arms of the administrative state, and it mostly operates kind of like the administrative state. It's a bunch of managerial bureaucrats that run the show. They're very consensus-driven, which is to say that they engage in groupthink all the time. If trends shift in one direction, you're not going to see somebody step out to be a contrarian. Why? Because just like the government and most big pharma companies, if you take a risk and you succeed, like let's say you're the guy who developed Lipitor and advocated for putting money into it before it became a mega blockbuster, you're not seeing any of that personal uncapped upside. On the other hand, if you're that person who made that decision and it fails, you might lose your job or have your budget cut. So people have no incentive to actually step outside of the mold to challenge conventional dogma and succeed. They're regulated by a government massive Byzantine bureaucracy that literally even the titles in the org chart are modeled directly after their corresponding titles at the FDA, that it more operates almost like a wing of the government than it does like most segments of the private sector. Then you get the patent system that creates this monopoly profit that once you get to the other side of the line, once you get to the promised land, the monopoly profits actually disguise the effects of normally what you'd get in consumer products markets or something like this through competition that has more that disciplining effect on an organization. It further ossifies that bureaucracy. So, so my main critique of big pharma is that it operates as the embodiment of the managerial class in the private sector. And, you know, it's a long story for another day, but that's what actually created the opportunity for me to found Royvent to develop drugs that pharma had neglected or passed over, but to do it in a way that, you know, often even bought up some of their own projects off their own shelves and developed them. And, you know, five of them are FDA approved products for medicines today. Vivek, do you have any uh, uh, opinions on 2024 elections? Like who, who you foresee uh, being at the helm, who, who has a shot? Well, what are your thoughts on the climate today? Because what happened this week, which is kind of a, a every comedian's dream come true, both sides had declassified documents. <laughs> and now the side uh, uh, who bashed the other side 
the president's uh, backing up his uh, Corvette and the classified documents are in the back. Peter Ducey asked the question saying, what was that all about? Why is there classified documents in your garage? He says, I always lock my garage. He's like, what do you mean you lock your garage? Well, so, the funny thing is, the, the, to me, this is the managerial class in government striking again, right? Merrick Garland looks at a U.S. president the same way that Anthony Fauci looks at most citizens. Shut up, sit down, and do what you're told, okay? Joe Biden's use has passed. Well, guess what? Now the leaks begin. Now the insiders turn on him, and they're going to dispose of him the same way the same institutions tried to dispose of President Trump, okay? It's like Jim Comey teaching Hillary Clinton a lesson. Well, guess what? He'll teach Donald Trump a lesson. This is the, this is the real threat to democracy is that technocratic, bureaucratic, managerial class. And the illusion that we live in today, the biggest illusion in America today, is that the people who we elect to run the government are the people who actually run the government. They do not. Okay, and I think that the top of an agenda for, I think, maybe for the GOP is more likely today, may as well be the Democratic Party for all I care, needs to be to replace the civil service protections that stop a U.S. president from being able to fire the people who report to him to convert those to sunset clauses instead and say, you know what, if you're the U.S. president, you can't serve in this country, can't serve in that position in this country for more than eight years I don't think most federal employees should be in their positions for more than eight years either. That's how you actually drain the so-called swamp. And I think that that's not a Republican agenda or Democratic agenda. I think it is a pro-constitutional Democratic integrity agenda. You think Kevin McCarthy is swamp? You know, the elected officials bother me less, to be honest with you, because they're still backstopped by public accountability. He's got to get elected every two years. Mm. He's accountable to the public. What bothers me, and, and you know what? I don't I don't I'm not as big on this. Um, I mean, I don't care as much about like term limits. We can talk about that. All is equal. I favor term limits. But where I think the real action is, is sunset clauses for the people who work in those bureaucracies without governmental accountability. And you ask about 2024. Well, I'll tell you this. I think Republicans in particular are too fixated on the question of who instead of asking the question of what. As in, what does it actually mean to be a conservative or what does it actually mean to be an American? Mm. And, and I picked the Republicans because, you know, presumably uh, you, have a, you have an incumbent president who we'll see how long this lasts could run. I think the Republican Party is obsessed too much on the who, too much on the biographical aspect of this and not enough on defining what it is it wants to stand for. And, you know, if I, uh, if I have something to say about it, you know, I, I care about advancing that agenda. So we'll, we'll talk over the next few months. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Do you have any uh, political uh, uh, aspirations long term or no? I think that aspirations would be the wrong way to say it. I think I have frustrations. Uh, I did think about running for the U.S. Senate in uh, 2022 for the 2022 seat in Ohio when it opened up in early 21. I I decided that being one of 100 was not the right setting for me. I, I think it's really important that good people fill that role. But for me, I got a good piece of advice, which is if you want to interview for a job, which is what you're doing if you're running a campaign, make sure you actually want the job and that you think you'd be passionate about doing that job and being one of 100 people pretending to pass laws when, in fact, just trying to get on Fox News or, or MSNBC at night, that didn't appeal to me. And I think that's what many people in that seat are doing today. So I won't run for the Senate. Uh, but beyond that, so meaning, you know, we'll are, are you more of a one of 100 guy, one of 50 guy or one of one guy? I think I'm at my best when I can be a one of one guy okay, that actually gets something it. done. <laughs> but but I, but I couldn't do it if your hands are tied by the people who effectively work underneath you. Because having run a company, I'll tell you, if you can't fire somebody, they don't actually work for you. I've done deals in Japan. In Japan, I've talked to CEOs where they will tell you, 
they literally can't fire a guy who works for them. So they'll tell him, in pharma companies included, they'll tell them to change the projects they're working on. The employee will nod. Okay. Go back three months later, the employee's doing exactly what he was supposed to, what he was doing before. Why? Because what the CEO does, says doesn't matter if you can't be fired for deviating from that mandate. And that's what we need to fix in our federal government is I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican. I at least want the people who we elect, the person who we elect to occupy that seat to actually run the executive branch. You of know the what government. would be crazy? It's not the, the case today. There was a guy. Imagine a world where a guy who ran a show where he was famous for firing people became a president. <laughs> imagine that guy. If only, right? yeah. If, I mean, and, just, then, and then now imagine that I mean, he actually does it when movie. he's in the office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You think there's any chance he'll be back in there or you think it's going to be more DeSantis? I don't believe in a dual choice menu. You're not an in and out guy. I'm not. I don't believe in just two choices. Uh, you know, on, on any menu. So give us a third choice. Well, well, let's let's let the year unfold. Why don't we? Is is there a third choice you would think? Like, is there anybody else that would be the third choice? Now we're going back too much on this. It's going back to the problem that I said: too much discussion of the who and not enough no, discussion of the what. But that's and the what is what I actually care about. I get that, but that's that's kind of a. a on to to fix the what right now with what happened this last week where uh, you saw it's going to take people. Gates. I agree with you. It's yeah, going to take it's the not, hoop. It's not a. Uh, you saw what Matt Gates happened with those guys where you know Kevin McCarthy thought the red wave was going to get him to say I don't need anybody from Trump's camp. I can do whatever I want to do. You guys go talk whatever you. I'm going to get so many different. You know the red wave that you guys can't even say nothing. I don't need your signatures. I don't need your votes. Shit change. He kind of needs their mm-hmm. help a lot. So it's in a different place where they kind of have to work together or else the other side could potentially uh, fire this guy named Joe Biden and bring this other guy named Gavin. I don't know if you know this other guy named Gavin who uh, likes to go to the French Laundry a lot mm-hmm. without that's masks right. on. Yeah, so he's uh, seeming to Well, making to sure be, that everyone else doesn't. Though. Yeah. That's, he, that's the key part of he's it. He's seeming to be their superstar. Anyways, tell us about the books before we, if you don't mind. So Woke as well as a native of a uh, nation of victims. What can you tell, them, tell us about these yeah, books? So Woke Inc. was basically a criticism of the merger of politics and business. It says keep politics out of the boardroom, not just for the sake of the companies, but for the sake of American democracy itself. And that whether you're black, white, gay, straight, Democrat or Republican, the private sector is one of those places where we can come together regardless of the boundaries of identity politics or partisan politics that's the power of American capitalism is it's actually unifying. People forget that. So that's one of the big themes in the first book, which is called Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. It's what it sounds like. The second book is the sequel. Okay. And, and you know, the problem with my first book was it really does take two to tango. Right. So some of this is top down, led by the ESG industrial complex, the Black Rocks of the world, corporate boards and so on. But it only works if there's a populace know, civic culture that's willing to eat it up. If there's a market for it. If there's a market for <laughs> it, right? And so, so the second question is, what's going on in our national There's a major psyche? market for it. Right there's a major now. market for victimhood. Mm-hmm. So what is it about this moment that we live in that causes us to embrace victimhood and exercise it as a currency? And, and the case I make in the book is it's actually a product of our national success. Success breeds entitlement, okay? Entitlement breeds laziness, And then victimhood fits laziness like a glove. It's a way of wrapping a moral justification around entitlement and laziness. And I trace from the history of Rome to even modern, to even American history, the post-Reconstruction era history that planted the seeds for some of this victimhood actually began in the South. I trace some of that history to how we got to where we are today. But the case I make in the book is we need to revive a shared national identity 
around the pursuit of excellence. Okay, the unapologetic pursuit of excellence is what it means to be American. One of the things I say is, you know what, when many Americans rallied behind the cry to make America great again, we did not hunger for a single man. We hungered for the unapologetic pursuit of excellence. And that is part of what it means to live that dream that Martin Luther King had 60 years ago, right? To say that no matter who you are or where you came from or what your skin color is, you can achieve anything you want in this country with your own hard work and your own dedication. That's the American dream. That is excellence. That is American identity. And for what I, for, for what I will say, I'll volunteer it to a party that's in search of an agenda. That's the Republican Party right now to say that that should be your agenda. Mm. Create a national identity that fills the vacuum at the heart of a generation with a shared pursuit of excellence. I think we'll be on the right track if we do. I mean, I love the title. So Woke Inc., Nation of Victims, we got the link below. Go order it, folks. Uh, with your help, we just crossed 500,000 subs. Uh, it's been a very interesting last 90 days. I think we got 300,000 subs the last 90 days. And uh, lots of good things are happening. We're about to have our first live podcast in a building that we turn into a cigar lounge, a private club, and a comedy club. And those of you, a couple thousand of you, have already subscribed to the community text to be invited to the first live podcast we'll have with a couple hundred people. If you want to be one of those to be at the first one, text the word podcast to 310-340-1132. Once again, the word podcast, text it to the number 310-340-1132. We cannot wait to meet many of you. Once the text goes out, just assume tickets will sell out within five to ten minutes. I would not be the one waiting for it, and it'll be here in South Florida. Vivek, thank you so much for coming out. This was fantastic, man. Really enjoyed a lot. Learned a lot about ESG, and I know the audience did as well. Uh, gang, have a good one. I don't think we got anything going on tomorrow. Do we have a podcast tomorrow? Or no, no. Tomorrow's Saturday. I know, but we had a, we had we, had, we have <laughs> Alex <laughs> Jones on a Saturday, right? In a couple weeks from now, that he's coming, coming right, down. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. But anyway, can I say one thing before you wrap yeah. up? He might have just kind of ruined the poll you did recently. What's the poll? Because you asked a question, very spirited question, spirited yeah. debate about whatever happened to the valedictorian in your school? Yeah. Right. You were the valedictorian. And I, I mean, I, I guess I guess you've done your research. Yeah. I, well, well, I could yeah. read. And you, you were the class valedictorian and you also graduated summa cum laude from Harvard. So it turns out some of these valedictorians are doing Every okay. once in a while, man. Every That's once good. in a while. These <laughs> Very valedictorians. good. Yeah. I think you uh, you showed your uh, showed your worth today. Hey, there's, there's, there's good and bad everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Good to see you guys.